I'm going to do some morning declarations again, and if you would like to declare with me, you can. I find it's very helpful to focus my heart and my mind on different things. So, uh, my God is with me. He will never leave me. I'm watching for your provision. You are the hope that I need. I trust in you more than I trust in stuff. I'm a new creation in Christ. I'm not a better version of the old me, but completely new and different. And the world will be different and better because I serve Jesus today. So I want to get started today with some good news, all right? Do you like starting with good news? I know I do. And that doesn't imply that we're going to end with bad news, okay? But we're going to start with good news. Uh, when you begin reading or, or trying for the first time to get into Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, as you go through those, uh, the, the Gospels, the, the, the stories of Jesus, and you're working your way through these, uh, these documents, there's something that becomes pretty obvious pretty quickly. Also something that we seem to miss fairly frequently. Here's the good news. Being a sinner doesn't disqualify you from following Jesus. Now, am, am I the only one for whom that's good news? Right? But, but, but it's better than not just being disqualified. It's a prerequisite. Can I get an amen? Can I get a praise the Lord? All right, there we go. And if you're going to be uh, following Jesus and you're thinking, yeah, but, but my past, or yeah, but, but I've done some stuff, and yeah, but sometimes I have these thoughts. The good news is that when you read the Gospels, when you read again Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as you read and you meet these followers of Jesus, and we're going to meet a couple of them today, um, you realize that being a sinner and having a past and having stuff that you are embarrassed of and stuff that you hope that nobody will ever find out about Maybe you wonder how you will ever be in a meaningful relationship because of the baggage or whatever. It doesn't disqualify you. It's actually a prerequisite. And it gets even better than that. Being an unbeliever doesn't disqualify you from following Jesus. Not knowing what to believe, not knowing how to believe, not sure that you want to believe, that doesn't disqualify you either. Here's, I, mean, I think this is a really big deal because it seems like this is a separation point for people. Here's why you can be on this road trip in earnest pursuit of Jesus with us. Because all of his followers unbelieved in the end. They believed, or at least they, they thought they believed, and then, they, and then they, they, they disbelieved. And there's a scene in John chapter 6 where uh, a bunch of them kind of say, well, I, you know what, I can't do this anymore. I think i got to get out. And then Jesus kind of challenges them, and he, and he calls them out on that. And they say, okay, all right, uh, I'll be back in. I'll give it another shot. And, and they're in, and, and, and they're out, and they're, and they're questioning, and they're doubting, and they go, I don't know how this all fits together. And in the end, they all click. They all hit. They all press unfollow, every single one of them. The famous ones and the unfamous ones that you have never heard of, they all selected unfollow. 
And if you're deciding where you stand with Jesus and you're trying to figure out what do I believe, what do I, what do I not believe, the good news is that with your doubts and with your questions, you can still begin to follow Jesus. Now, Jesus is first, it's hard to say Jesus is, just so you know. Jesus' first century followers, they're an eclectic band, really kind of a motley crew. Uh, there were small business owners. There were uh, CRA agents. There were patriots, you know, some people who just, um, they were absolutely all for Israel and, and totally against Rome, and they, were, they wanted Rome to, to be gone, and they were, they were hoping that maybe Jesus would, would lead a movement to permanently oust Rome from the Holy Land. And there was, there was men and women, there was blue collar and white collar, there was educated and there were the not so educated. And, and, and that's right, there were educated people also. And the reason that that one is highlighted, the reason I want to emphasize that one is perhaps when you were in university or perhaps you, you've come across this conversation somewhere before, that one of the reasons that we can know for certain that the apostles did not write Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is because it's written in Greek. And there was no way that four ignorant fishermen who spoke Aramaic and couldn't even write in their own language, let alone in the higher educated language of Greek, uh, could put together this level of Greek literature. And the question is, how in the world did they write this sophisticated texts in Greek? And therefore, we know that they didn't write them. And therefore, we know that this is information that can't be trusted. And that the Gospels were actually written many, many generations after the events. Well, that's the common argument. That's the way the story goes. But that's the argument that they give you to not read the Gospels. The, the problem is that when you actually go and read the Gospels, you find that there were some very educated people who followed Jesus. Matthew records one of these stories in uh, chapter 8. Um, a guy comes up to Jesus and, and he says, I'm a scribe and I like what you're doing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow you everywhere you go. And, and as a scribe, in the, uh, they're an educated person, right? And a scribe could, could generally read two, uh, maybe three, maybe even more languages, read and write in those. And the idea that it's just a bunch of ignorant people following Jesus breaks down. So, so consequently, we can't trust what they wrote. Um, the whole argument of that, it's just an old argument. It's out of date, and it comes less from an honest assessment and more from a scholarly disinterest. We don't want to read it, and here are reasons that we use for that. So you have all kinds of people who follow Jesus, and we meet some of his earliest followers. We're going to do that today. Some of these folks just happen to be also some of his most famous followers. So if this is just your, uh, your first episode to turn in for, I just want to catch you up real quick like uh, previously on the Upside Down, John the Baptist shows up on the banks of the Jordan River and he draws a big crowd and then he focuses that crowd's attention on Jesus. And just when we think Jesus is about to step out and he's going to start his big new public ministry in front of John's big massive gathered crowd, Jesus disappears. And he goes out into the wilderness, and there he wrestles with the tempter, with the accuser, with the Satan. And he wrestles with something that he would have to wrestle with time and time again throughout his entire life. And that's this. Whose kingdom is this about? 
am I going to truly embrace the values of the kingdom of God or am I going to embrace the values of the kingdoms of this world? And then after that season of being tempted, these temptations come back many times, but after that, um, that season, the text tells us that Jesus, um, he went back closer to where he grew up. And so we'll jump in there. Verse 14, it says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. So his following did grow, and it did grow quickly, because everyone who had come out to see John the Baptist, and John the Baptist said, here he is. So, so all of John's followers thought, who thought that John was a big deal, well, now they're going, well, if John said this guy's a big deal, well, I guess we should go check him out too. And so one day, after church or after synagogue, a guy named Simon Peter, he's just a regular guy in the community, he invites Jesus of Nazareth home for lunch. And on the way home, Simon, uh, he sort of stumbles it out. He goes, oh, oh yeah, um, I, I do have a bit of an agenda. My mother-in-law has a fever and it just won't go away. So we were wondering if maybe if you're going to be there anyways, could you just address that, deal with that after you have your soup and pita lunch? And, and to be clear, that was to make the fever go away and not make the mother-in-law go away. Just important clarity there, even though both would be miraculous. Uh, so, so this is a big secret. It's all on the down low. Peter is asking Jesus to heal his mother-in-law on the Sabbath. And you're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. And well, as it always does, information begins to leak out into the community. And that night, when the sun went down and the Sabbath was officially over, things got active. Verse 40, at sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sicknesses and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. And so we can easily just kind of read right on past all of those things. But this is significant because in the first century, in that faith system then, you were not supposed to touch sick, and especially dying people, even more so if they had a physical manifestation of their illness. You don't touch them. The idea is that you would be contaminated and then spread the contamination. Now, they didn't understand germs, but there were certainly some valid community care practices that they had uh, hidden in what they were doing. Jesus, on the other hand, would intentionally touch sick people. And instead of picking up their illness, they picked up his wholeness, and they received healing. And understandably, this is kind of overwhelming to people as they watch it happen. And the reason that Jesus healed people wasn't just to make people well. The reason that Jesus healed people is because in that culture, as is the case many times in our culture, people associate sickness with sin. How can you tell if a person can forgive your sin? Well, you can't, right? There's no outward manifestation or magic horn that appears. But if someone can touch a sick person, and, and, and if sin is related to sickness, 
If you can heal someone and make them physically well, then you might just have the power to heal my relationship with my heavenly Father. So in a world where sin and sickness go together, Jesus begins by healing people by laying his hands on them. And this sets the stage for what comes next. Now, there's two versions of what comes next. The first one uh, comes from Matthew. The second one comes from Luke. And they both tell us uh, the truth. But Luke, as he always does, gives us a bunch more detail. Because that's just how he rolls. This is how Jesus called his very first followers. And Matthew's version goes kind of like this. Jesus is walking beside the Sea of Galilee. Okay? And he sees a guy named Peter, and there's also Andrew, and they're fishing. And he says to Peter and Andrew, hey, come, follow me. And then verse 20, it says, at once they left their nets and followed him. No other details. But they keep walking along, and then they see James and John. And they are out there in, in their boat, and they're fishing with their father. And Jesus says, follow me. And verse 22 says, and immediately they left the boat, and they left their father and followed him. Bye, Dad. We're leaving. And he says, have fun storming the castle, boys. Good luck with the fishing business, Dad. I know that you raised us to take over and to take care of you, but oh well. And when you read Matthew's version, not only is it unrealistic, it also seems kind of irresponsible. And I grew up hearing preachers make a big deal of this, right? You just need to follow Jesus. You just need to give up everything and follow Jesus and do it right now. And if he's not Lord of all, and if you don't trust him completely and immediately, then he is not Lord at all. It's a really well-polished guilt trip. But, but just look what these guys did, right? Look how they changed the world. You should do the same kind of thing. Everybody should do the same kind of thing. That's what Jesus would always look like. But honestly, who would do that? Do you think that's the point of the story? And so, and so Luke wrote to us, more of the non-Jewish audience as opposed to Matthew, who wrote to a very Jewish audience. And Luke realized that, that we're going to have some questions so Luke, who continually gives us lots of details, he, he's a historian's dream. He helps them out, but he helps us out too. So Luke gives us more of the backstory as to why this happened and, and what happened. He fleshes it out. It confirms Matthew's story, but it gives us more context. So here is Luke's account of what Matthew just told us. Luke 5, verse 1. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, now, it, it's, that's just another name for the Sea of Galilee, okay? Um, the people were crowding around him. And everywhere he went, Jesus drew a crowd. And this is still like the pre-paparazzi kind of thing. And they're there listening to the Word of God. And here we just stumble on, again, something that is very, very important. If you're new to faith, if you are considering faith, and you aren't sure, you just, do I even want to consider faith? hear this. Christian faith, not all religions, but when it comes to Christianity, Christian faith begins with information. 
It does not begin with faith. Christianity is informed, evidence-based faith. That might be, this, this, this might kind of get meddling a little bit, but if you're in, 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 a, in a church or any kind of religious kind of gathering, maybe even another religion, and if you can't question it, then you should probably consider leaving it. If you can't question it, if you can't get into it and say why and how come, you should consider leaving it, even if it's a Christian church, because the authentic version of Christianity can be questioned, because it began with information. It didn't begin with faith. You become a Christian by faith. You do not become a Christian because of faith. So following Jesus does not begin with faith. It does not begin with believe, right? So you remember John the Baptist, JTB? John the Baptist, JTB is preaching. He's down by the Jordan River, and Jesus shows up. Do you remember what JTB says to Jesus, says to the crowd about Jesus? We've gone over this a couple of times. He doesn't say, believe. What does he say? Look, here comes Jesus. Look, look, there he is. You can see him. He's right there. Look at him, and I want you to begin to follow him. And if you look, and if you follow, and if you pay attention, perhaps one day it will dawn on you that this is something that you can believe. So Jesus is teaching. People are getting information. They are crowding, crowding, crowding. You know how that works, right? And so Jesus is stepping back, stepping back, stepping back. And the next thing you know, his sandals are getting wet. And he's thinking, this can't go on much longer. It's way too early to do that walk on water thing. So we need to do some kind of an adjustment. Verse 2, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. The reason that they are washing their nets is because they had already been fishing. This was mid-morning. You fish at night because the water is cool. Fish come to the surface to feed near the surface. You grab them in a net. When the sun rises, the water warms, the fish go deeper. So you fish with nets at night. They have already been fishing. Nets have been pulled out. Nets have been cleaned from all the floating beer cans and plastic. Nets have been stretched out and are drying. Then they will carefully roll them up because they have been fishing all night. Now it is time to take a break, a wee siesta, before they have to do this all over again. So verse 3, he got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon Peter, and he asked him just to put out a little bit from shore. And then he sat down and he taught the people from inside the boat. Now they can come right to the water's edge if that's what they want. Luke gives us a lot of these details about the, the progression and how things worked and even just the logistics. It's not just Peter who is listening, okay? We know that Andrew, James, and John are all listening. Jesus finishes the sermon and he gives the invitation, but he doesn't say, come forward. That's not the invitation. He gives a let's go fishing invitation. So in verse 4, he says, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, and he, he does something here, again, that's unexpected. 
seemingly a little bit irrational, but doable, his request, something that Simon was actually capable of doing quite easily, even though it's a little odd. He doesn't say to him, I want you to abandon your family. I want you to abandon your job. Come follow me. That's what you have to do to follow me. He gives Simon Peter a baby step. He says, hey, since we're already out here anyways, let's go out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. It's simple, right? It's something that Peter can do. Except, you know, we just clean the nets and they're, and they're drying. So verse 5, Simon answers, Master, and he uses this very interesting term to refer to Jesus. It's not, not referred to other places. He's not saying rabbi. He didn't say Lord. That comes later. But it's a sign of respect. Master, we've worked all night. We're tired, right? We just cleaned up. If we drop the nets in the water, oh, geez, then we're going to have to uh, clean them up again, and then we're going to have to dry them again, and then we'll have no siesta. We've worked hard all night. And just as a further heads up, when we were out last night, we didn't catch anything, right? We haven't caught anything when you are supposed to fish. What are the odds that we're going to catch something if we go out when you are not supposed to fish? And if my recollection is correct, you are not primarily a fisherman. Jesus, isn't that right? You focus more on carpentry, I think. So I assume that you do know lots. I know that you're a good teacher to listen to. And I have no doubt that you're even a great carpenter. But about fishing? Besides that, Jesus, uh, you've drawn quite a crowd. Uh, people are watching. They are going to watch me fish in the middle of the day and catch nothing. Now, Here's the transition point. And if I could invite all of you who, again, are on the edge, all of you who have walked away but are considering coming back, all of you who uh, maybe your Christianity has gotten a little uh, flat, a, a little boring, a little stale, a little mundane, this is the transition point. This is the that changes everything point for Peter. It is inconvenient. I don't understand. Uh, there's no guarantee that this is going to work. There's no guarantee that it's going to make any difference. And Peter says, but because you say so. You, you did just heal my mother-in-law, right? So I probably owe you one. Because you say so. But this doesn't make any sense. Because you say so, it's going to cost me. It's probably going to cost me a day, and that's probably going to end up costing me money. With all these people watching, it's going to cost me some of my reputation. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. And this is the big pause for us in the story. Think of what they didn't know. They had no idea what hung in the balance with this one decision. If they had not met Jesus and if they had decided to not follow him, these guys would just have been forgotten. Nameless first century fishermen that accounted to nothing other than regular folks, which is still fine. Nobody would know their names. But Peter didn't know about this. Look at this picture. 
Have you seen this place? This is St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Next picture. This is the inside. And an issue that they have is that people come here and they want to lay down on the floor and just look up. Just drink it in. They come here and they're filled with wonder. And if you were like me, then your thought might be like mine. Maybe uh, people like Matt and Terry don't think of this, but I do. I look at that and I say, I don't know how they constructed that. I don't know how they would do that today, all right? I can't imagine how they did all that in the 16th century. It took 120 years to build this building. This is supposedly over the tomb of St. Peter. There was already a little building there at one point, and then they came along in the 16th century, and they built this extra, double, magnificent, super-duper building. And the cool thing is that they built this right over the spot that was Nero's circus, right on top of it. And this is the arena where Nero would feed Christians to lions. He wrapped them in animal clothes and fed them to wild beasts. He impaled them on spikes. He put tar in their hair and lit them on fire. This was setting the gold standard on how to persecute Christians. And, and this building is on that very site. It's probably very close to the vicinity of where both Peter and Paul were executed. One replacing the other. Now, Peter didn't know anything about that. Peter's just, oh man, this is embarrassing. I I'm going to lose a day. People are going to think I'm losing my mind. He had no idea what hung in the balance. And Jesus didn't say, leave everything, drop it all and follow me. All he said was, take me fishing. P Peter, just, just take me fishing. And I know it sounds weird, and, and, and I know it doesn't seem to make sense, but will you just trust me with this? Just take me fishing. You, you've watched me teach. You know that I'm probably from God. I'm, I'm at least a prophet. Trust me with this little thing. Now, here's what I'm going to say to you, and then we'll get back to the story. Here's what I know for sure about you. You have no idea what hangs in the balance of your decision to say yes to whatever it is that God wants you to do next. Not only do we, know, we do not know what hangs in the balance of whatever God is asking you to do, we don't know who hangs in the balance. We don't know what relationship you will never have by saying no to a simple invitation to take the next step. And that's true for all of us, for the entirety of our lives. Some of you, your Christianity is flat. You've got it all under control. Everything's fine. And every once in a while, you were challenged to leave your comfort zone, and you managed to talk yourself out of it. You have no idea what hangs in the balance of your decision to do something uncomfortable that you feel prompted in your heart to do. Verse 6. When they had done so. Not when they had believed so. Not when they had considered it. Not when they felt guilty about it. Not when they decided to begin to pray about it. When they acted. 
on what Jesus asked them to do. And throughout his teaching ministry, Jesus would say, it's not enough to listen. It's not enough to listen. Listen. Listening makes no difference. Doing, applying, engaging makes all the difference. Listening, it makes no difference. Listening is like unapplied paint. It doesn't help anything. It's in applying the paint that it makes the difference. It's in applying the teaching that makes the difference. When they had done so, when their faith had had intersected with the character of Jesus, everything changed. They caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. And so they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both boats so full that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he cried out, we're rich. We're not going to have to work for weeks. And immediately, Peter offered Jesus a seven-year contract, 30% ownership of the company, and a seven-year non-compete clause that would be decided, uh, the contract that would happen, you know, whoever ended the contract. Peter's only concern was really, uh, will this model scale? Get it? Scale? Okay. For those of you who are new, that's not what really happened. Surprise. Uh, But now, what would you do? You were there. You were in the boat. What would you have done? I think what Peter does makes so much sense. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees. Suddenly fish are the furthest thing from his mind. And he said, go away from me, Lord. New title. Lord. Why the name change? Had Jesus suddenly become something that he wasn't before? In one sense, no. But in one sense, yes. Suddenly it's a title of authority. It is now a title of ownership. And why would he say, go away from me? Well, Peter tells us, it's because I am a sinful man. We may be inches apart, but we're nowhere close. Because his assumption was the same assumption of the community which is the same assumption of the first century Judaism, this assumption might be the same one that you are struggling with right now. The assumption is that God distances himself and keeps sinners um, distant from him. And Peter is suddenly confronted with this isn't just a great teacher. He's not even just a miracle worker. This person, whoever he is, somehow He's from God. And he's way closer to God than he is to me, and I have no business even being in the presence of this man. And God distances himself from sinners. And religious leaders in that time certainly distanced themselves from sinners. And Jesus came to reverse all of that. This was brand new because Jesus had come to establish something brand new, a new kind of relationship between God and man. And being a sinner was a prerequisite. And little did people, Peter know that Jesus had come to establish a brand new covenant governed by a brand new ethic that would be part of his brand new movement. And Peter himself would be the first person in history to actually speak 
the definition, the rallying point, the thing that everyone would have in common in the brand new movement in the world, eventually that would be called the church. I'm not even worthy to be in your presence. Verse 9, for he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken, and so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. And then Jesus said to Simon, something that he would say to his guys over and over and over again, he said, don't be afraid. Now that you've seen me heal, now that you've seen me control nature, there is nothing to be afraid of if you are with me. From now on, I've got, I've got plans for you. You've got no idea. But from now on, you are fish for people. Let's go change the world together. And so they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. And these four guys would die with nothing, including regret. But here's where we are. See if this describes you. Well, if God would do that for me, well, then I'd be all in, right? I'd leave, I'd leave everything and follow him too. Does that sound about right? But if you were to talk to Peter about that, I think he'd say, what? Come on, Peter. If I was on my boat and I was there and I saw the fish and if I touched the fish and if I sold the fish, I'd follow him too. Peter would still be, seriously? He did a fish trick for me. That's all he did. He just did a fish trick for me. Do you know what he did for you? You should know what he did for you. I dictated a letter to you. Have you read my letter? Did you even know that I sent two? Have you read them both? They were really hard. It was hard for me to write all that. It's, no, 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 it's not the Bible. The Bible doesn't appear for about 300 years. That letter that Peter wrote, the guy who decided to follow Jesus, he wrote. There, there was evidence and there was teaching and then there was an invitation to a baby step. That very same Peter, he wrote a letter to first century Christians and, and the first century Christians thought this was so good, so valuable. Guess what they did? They meticulously copied it down. And if you have a Bible, in that Bible you have two letters from this man. And he would look at you and he'd say, seriously, you, you need to follow Jesus. Do you know what he's done for you? Let me tell you. And, and, and maybe he, he would read to you from his own letter. Verse 23, when, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. Peter would tell you, I saw this, I saw this with my own eyes. I saw him taken. I was there. I saw him arrested. I, I, I saw him beaten. I saw him crucified. Have you ever seen a crucifixion? And, well, no. Have you ever smelled a crucifixion? No. Have you ever heard the screaming of a fully grown man who knows it's going to take him hours to hang there and die? Have you ever seen that? Have you ever experienced that? To which, of course, we would all say, no. No, and frankly, I don't like hearing about the details. Peter could tell you. 
I've been there. I've seen that. I saw my friend Jesus crucified. And when he suffered, he made no threats. And this, I'm telling you, this is just unbelievable. Nobody did this. They scream to die. They scream. They hurled insults at anyone and everyone. They call for their mothers. And my friend Jesus hung there, and he did none of that. I saw this. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly and to us. Come on. It was the most unjust act imaginable. But it's as if he knew that this was all just part of some master plan. And then later, not in the moment, because it was too emotional and honestly, we're just too embarrassed. So Peter would tell you that he was probably the most embarrassed. He'd say, because I ran. When somebody thought that I might be one of his followers, I denied that I even knew his name. And now I'm on the edge of the crowd. I got my hoodie up and I'm watching. I'm hoping that I'm not recognized. I'm watching this man who was no mere man die. And later, it dawns on us, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins. We, we as in all of us, we have the opportunity to die to sins. And what does that mean? Instead of being dead to, instead of being separated from God, like we had always been told, sin separates from God. We are forever separated from God because of our sins, that God is so holy and we are so not holy. And we can pray to God and hope for the best, but we can never have actual intimacy in a relationship with God. But Peter says Jesus, because of Jesus, he took our sin. And because of that, we died to separation from God. We are now dead to being separated. We are now dead to the separating power of sin. And so now we have an opportunity to fully have a relationship with God. And Peter takes it one step further. He says, and to live for righteousness. We now have the invitation and the permission to live fearlessly because when your best friend is your Savior who can harness the power of nature and who has overcome the power of disease and the power of death, what is there left to fear? And now, with fearless living, facing life with no fear, we can live right and we can live good and we can live others first. We can live eyes up. We can live out and embrace the values of the kingdom of God. And do you hear how that stands in stark contrast to what we talked about in our last episode about all of the things that corrupt us. He says, but that's not all. By his wounds you have been healed. That is, you have been restored. You have been made right with God. Fish tricks? Come on, that's nothing. Surrendering to crucifixion for the sins of other people? Whew. That's massive. And you, on the other side of all that, aren't following? When, when Judas showed up with the temple guard, we knew it was a big deal. We knew it was trouble. We thought that we were going to have to run for our lives. And I watched 
Jesus walk up to his betrayer and turn himself in knowing where it would lead. No mere mortal would do that. He gave his life for you. You should follow him. When Peter made that simple baby step, decision to take the boat out and to drop the net, this, this, is, this is the way that Jesus worked. This is the, the gospel. What I'm about to explain, this is, this is just his baby step. His faith, okay, okay I'm going to take a risk. Okay, I'm going to take a chance. His faith intersected with God's faithfulness and everything changed. That's the way it works. It's all small steps. Just, just little baby steps. And so, so I have to ask you, because I think Peter would ask you, you are on the other side of the resurrection and you're still not following? Well, who are you following? Who, who has made you a better offer? Peter would say, one day, I was about to leave, and then I realized, who's offering me eternal life? That would be no one. And yeah, this is difficult. And yeah, it's challenging. But what's your next step? For some of you, it's just coming back to faith. You've been putting it off, and because of that, now you're a little embarrassed. What are you going to tell your friends? How do you explain this? You just need to come back to faith. For some of you, there's somebody out there. There's a, there's, a, there's a broken, a severed relationship. And you know that it's enough of your fault. You need to deal with it. It's not all your fault. Of course it's not all your fault. But every time you pray and every time you, uh, you try the God thing, it just, it just keeps popping back up and you say, oh yeah. You, you just need to take care of that. Your heavenly Father who loves you is saying, come on, I want you to follow me. For some, it's going to be moral purity. You, you, you just got to walk away from some of the stuff that you're into. Maybe you need to take a year off from dating. You've been thinking, uh, you just don't know what to do. You don't, but you need to just get your heart, your mind re-centered. For, for some of you, it's going to be serving. You've gotten very comfortable. You need to get out of your comfort zone again. You need to get involved directly with breaking down barriers and opening doors. Do something that will stretch you. Get involved in something that will make you need to pray hard. For some of you, your life is stuff. You have a hard time letting go of your stuff. And you've thought about it before. It's time for me to figure out how to be more of a giver and less of an accumulator, less of a taker. So come on. What are you afraid of? Are you going to live your whole life afraid of something that you have no control over? Come on. Trust him. Trust Jesus. He's faithful. He's powerful. And he always has your best interest at heart. Follow Jesus. Because you don't know what hangs in the balance of your decision to say yes to the next thing that your heavenly Father is prompting you to do. Kind Father, thanks for, thanks for the message 
the life, the display, the example, the continuing ongoing presence of Jesus. He changed history and he can change our history too. So for my friends that are here today, for my friends that are watching and joining with us or listening, God, I pray that you would speak into their heart, into their life right now. Holy Spirit, you're welcome to move in that way, to illuminate a next step, to show us where we, where we can go, where you would have us to go, that would intensify our relationship, that would deepen our relationship with you, to bring it to life, to give it vibrancy and beauty and definition. Lord Jesus, it is our desire to follow you. So as you lead, find me faithful, walking after you. Thanks. In Jesus' name. Amen.